I wonder, um, I wonder how good you think you are. I mean, after all, uh, 90% of Canadians will not be in church this weekend. I mean, that puts you in a pretty exclusive group of 10%. One in 10 Canadians will find their way to a place of worship, and you're here. I mean, that's got to count for something, don't you think? I mean, I wonder how often you pat yourself on the back for the great moral choices you're making in contrast to so many others around you who don't make the same kind of moral choices. And wondering those two things, I wonder how easy it is to lose my faith while practicing my religion. That's really where Jesus takes us uh, today. It's the challenge that Jesus is presenting in Luke 18, the parable that he's teaching. He said this in verse 9, and we'll read the whole passage in a moment. He wrote this, is speaking about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And that was actually seen in the manner in which the two people that we're going to look at in the, in the parable, the manner in which they approached God. You, you could see if they had trust in themselves by how they prayed, how they came before the Lord in worship. And very simply, Jesus wants us to ask the question today as we read the parable and study through it. He wants every single individual to ask themselves the question, what's my approach to God? How do I come to him? How do I talk to him? What's my posture? What's my attitude when I come to him? And we're going to do that in order to diagnose, and, and this is the thing about the parables, they're so punchy. They pierce our hearts because we're going to ask that question, what's my approach to God, in order to diagnose whether or not we are truly saved. But that's the stakes. They're high once again. And so let's read the passage, Luke 18, uh, 9 to 14. Um, I'll pray and we'll begin working through this together. He, uh, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's um, such a temptation and so easy for us to read this parable and to know what the right side of it is 
and to identify with the right side of this parable and then to miss the very um, challenging message that you have for us. And so God, we don't want to miss it. We've invested the time to be here today. We have the word open in front of us. And so God, I uh, pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to, first of all, hear what we need to hear to be able to understand what we're hearing. And then, Father, with our hearts, believe it and our wills, make a decision to obey it to make any changes that need to be changed. So again, we invite the Holy Spirit to do that work in each one of us as we study through your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get after this. We're setting up a contrast here, as often the parables do, a contrast between uh, two different people, two different approaches to God. So let's uh, start with this. You can see in your notes the point and counterpoint as we work through the uh, parable. So let's start with this question. Do I think I'm better than others? Do I think I'm better than others? Very few people, some, very few people would come out and actually say this. I think I'm better than so-and-so. Um, some people wouldn't say it, but they'd think it. And some people wouldn't say they even think it, but subconsciously, okay, the whole thing about the subconscious is you don't think you're thinking it, but everything about your attitude and your posture and your actions and your words shows that you think it. Do I think I'm better than other people? The posture and attitude that we have, and those are two words we're going to keep coming back to, say so much about this, and they convey this maybe underlying belief that I think I'm better than other people. And as it was in the last passage we looked at last week, Luke gives us the point or the interpretation of the parable right up front. Verse 9 gives it to us. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some, not all, some people are struggling with this, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so when you have this attitude of superiority, conscious or subconscious, you are going to treat the people around you contemptfully because you believe you're better than them. Now, before we get into the depth of all of that and looking at the Pharisee who represents this uh, particular point, um, Let's introduce ourselves to the two men that Jesus is using as his examples here. First of all, we have a tax collector. We want to fully understand why Jesus used a tax collector for his example here. Now, the tax collectors were particularly despised in first century, century Israel. They were Jewish people who did the work of collecting taxes, but they were collecting the taxes on behalf of the occupying armies of the Roman Empire. So they were despised because they were collaborators with the Romans. Now, I told you all of that, but the reality is you would only need to be a tax collector to be despised, correct? I mean, who likes the tax man? I mean, if there is somebody in our church that works for the CRA, they have not identified themselves, <laughs> and rightfully so. They're staying covert. They don't want you to know they're a tax collector. So this man, in his cultural context, he's not only a tax collector, but he's working on behalf of the despised Roman Empire, so he himself is despised. And he is perceived by his own people to have abandoned them, to have rejected what it means to be 
Jewish. And so this man is a stand-in really for anyone who is non-religious in our own culture. A person who is given to a lifestyle that's more consistent with the world than with the Scriptures. I mean, this is a man who is... um, I mean, it wouldn't even cross his mind to be in church this weekend. Think about the 90% of people. I mean, please don't think that among the 90%, there's a bunch of people who are thinking, wow, I should have gone to church today. They did not think about that. They're not thinking about giving some of their income to the Lord's work. They, they're, they're, not, they're not considering at all reading the Bible. The people who didn't come to church, it's not even crossing their mind to live this way. And that's the tax collector. He's not making the same moral choices that we're making. When our lives are in line with the Word of God, he doesn't have a biblical view of sexuality, of marriage, of alcohol consumption, or any of these things. He is living, if I can put it this way, he is living the normal, non-Christian life that 90% of the people who live on your street are living. Okay, that's the tax collector. The, The second a man here is the Pharisee. <clears throat> now he's a stand-in for anyone who's deeply religious to the extent that it informs every single part of their lives. So this isn't a person who just kind of goes to church on the weekend, but then they kind of live their life any way they want. There's a lot of those people. No, this is a person who is deeply devoted to living according to their faith system. That's the Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee is kind of a code word for I don't want to be that in the Bible. For those of us that know the scriptures, we all, Pharisee, I don't want to be that for sure. But here's the thing about the Pharisees. They have a high view of scripture. They're devoted to being in God's place of worship weekly, if not more often than that. They have a active prayer life. They're generous, over generous in terms of their giving, going beyond what the scriptures even say concerning giving. They serve the Lord. They, 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 they're worshipers of the Lord. And it's informing every single aspect of their daily lives. Now, if I was to take that description, could I not place that on people that call Harvest their church? In other words, the Pharisees in first century uh, Judaism are the conservative, Bible-believing Christians of our day. That's who the Pharisees are. That's how people saw them. I mean, they were super Christians, extreme in their observance of the things of God's Word. And so we have these, these two different men standing in sharp contrast to one another, and Jesus is going to make a point about this. And what's curious is he tells the story, and as we see it unfold, and we have an idea how this is going to play out, and I just, I put this in the category of this is just curious. But the Pharisee, very few words are given to his posture and, and his preparation to be before the Lord, but so many more words in his prayer. Whereas the tax collector is so concerned with his posture before the Lord and his prayer is so very short. And I wonder if there's just something in that even as we begin to look at this and unpack it and see what the Lord has for us in this. So to the Pharisee and the question, do I think I'm better than others? Verses 10 and 11, two men went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you 
that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Now, no question that list is a list of notorious sinners. These are things that must be repented of if you're going to come into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say, because the comparison even at that point is not helpful, but then he takes a step further and goes, or even like this tax collector. I mean, they had come to the temple at this particular time of day. Twice a day, there were prayers in the temple courts, and the people would gather in there, and at the end of the prayers and the burning of incense, there would be a priest who would come out, and he would pronounce a blessing on the people. So they've come in as part of a crowd of people who've come for prayer. And this Pharisee's standing over here by himself, but he notices this tax collector, and he points him out in his prayer because he's all about the comparisons. And he believes in standing where he is that he's better than this man, not just generic sinners, but this man who dared to come into the temple and presume to pray. He was thinking that he was better than other people. He was unashamed, it's shocking, but unashamed to say so to God. And I want to ask the question, is there any hint of that in me? Do I think in any way that I'm better than other people? I've always been employed. Do I think I'm better than someone who has a hard time keeping a job or finding a job? I've always been a healthy person. Do I think I'm better than someone who's struggled with health all of their lives? I have a home. Do I think I'm better than the homeless? I'm young-ish. <laughs> it's a sliding scale. Do I, do, I, do I think I'm better than the aged or the young? Do I think I'm better than anyone because of my standing? Is there anyone I'm looking at thinking I'm better than them? Is there any hint of that in me? In the simplest application of this parable, if we were to end the message right now and, and just look at it, it would, it would be simply this. We have to avoid all comparisons. The simplest application would be that I'm here today to hear this message for me, so I'm not thinking about the person across the aisle and going, you know, this is a really mess, good message for them. Not thinking about the person beside me and thinking, man, I sure hope they're listening. And I'm not thinking about someone who's not here thinking, I, they should be here. This is their message. I mean, this is for me. I have to ask, do I think I'm better than anyone else? We have to avoid all comparisons. And even this one, because this one's a little more shocking. Even the comparison where I know, reading the parable, that I'm supposed to identify with the tax collector. I get it. But then I could get to the place where I'm praying and I'm saying, Father, I'm so glad I got the idea of your parable and I'm so glad I'm not like the Pharisee. Because in the moment you pray the prayer that you're not like the Pharisee, you become the Pharisee. So no comparison. I mean, if you're going to compare yourself to anyone, there's only one you should be comparing yourself to. And who is that? Jesus Christ. That's it. Compare yourself to him.
So, do I think I'm better than others? Or here's the other question, the other side of that. Do I see myself as God sees me? So the tax collector's approach was so very simple. Verse 13, the latter part of the verse there, you can see it. It'd be great to underline that. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, he says. In actual fact, the English translations, most of them kind of uh, let us down a little bit on this uh, prayer. The original Greek language and the New American Standard, if you're carrying that version, actually capture it better. It's just the difference between an indefinite article and a definite one. But here's what the original actually says. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. Not just like random a sinner, but the sinner. And I imagine, here's this Pharisee who's praying. He's already referenced the tax collector, he said, this tax collector, imagine if the tax collector is just like here praying and he heard him. And essentially his prayer is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner that this Pharisee was just referring to. He's right. I am worse than him. That's the prayer. I begin to see myself the way God sees me. Do you see yourself that way as needing Christ, as everyone needs Christ? Are you aware that the only play you have is to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ and plead for his mercy? It's the only play any of us have. And I, I think about that a lot as I think about the kind of church that we want to be. And I know I've banged this drum before. I'm going to keep banging this drum. And this is the kind of church we want to be. A church that's filled with people who are broken and know they're broken and aren't afraid to confess and admit that they're broken. Aren't afraid to pray this prayer for mercy because they know they're not bringing anything to the table. That's the kind of people that we want to build into this church and have as part of this church. And the kind of people who are going to feel comfortable here are people who know they don't have it all together and who are quite willing to model what we talk about in soul care, what we talk about in our small groups. They're willing to model authenticity. No masks. They're willing to model transparency. Uh, this is my life. They're willing to, uh, to, to um, model vulnerability. I'm broken that way too. People who know that everything they have is as a result of the grace of God and therefore having received that grace from God are just so willing to dispense it to others. Grace upon grace upon grace to one another because we all know how hard this is. See, we're building a church where legalists and finger waggers and those concerned with outward appearances are going to be so uncomfortable here. We freely admit that we're stumbling and scrambling and scraping for every inch of holiness that we attain. I've talked before about this being an endurance race. The scriptures speak about this being an endurance race, not a sprint. No one's, no one's breaking the tape at, 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 at full, with a full head of steam. We're all kind of crawling and scraping to get to the end. The word that describes the Christian life is perseverance. 
because it's so hard to get there. And we need the Holy Spirit to actually give us what we need to persevere in that way. To help us make it to the end. No step of this journey is easy. And God sees me as completely dependent on him for life and for salvation and to persevere to the end. So we're never going to forget that God's perspective of us is as these broken human beings tainted by sin. And I love what G.K. Chesterton said about this. There are, take a look at this, there are saints indeed in my religion, but a saint only means a man who really knows he's a sinner. I mean, that's us. That's what we're going for here. Now, one caution about this, because God doesn't just see us as sinners. So our own perspective on ourselves needs to be qualified as well. In other words, when we look at this, it would be easy to fall into self-loathing, and God doesn't want us to fall into self-loathing. It would easy to be easy to fall into what some religions do fall into, which is kind of self-punishment, and I need to beat myself up over things, or I need to somehow make amends for things and do penance as compensation for my sin, as if I could possibly even do that, and I can't. And so it's not those things. I am, even in my sinful state, created in the image of God. I bear His image. And I don't want to give away too much of the end of the message, but it's important to say right here, I'm not only a sinner, but, but God sees me if I am in Christ as a son or daughter of the King of Kings, and I have this inheritance ahead of me, and I will say more about that soon. Because at the end of the parable, Jesus takes us there. So, this informs, this question informs do I think I'm better than others or do I see myself as God sees me? It's now going to inform how I pray. Do I pray, as the Pharisee did, self-confidently or do I pray God-dependently? Verse 11, the Pharisee, he's now, check this out, he's standing by himself. Now, he's standing by himself in the sense that he sees himself as the center of attention. He's walked confidently into the temple courts. He believes in every way that he belongs there. This is my place. This is where I should be. And, and he wants people even to notice him that he's there in the temple. Standing by himself as the center of attention. It's portraying his sense of status, of position, of worthiness in comparison to all others. And somehow he's fallen into the trap of this self-confidence, believing that his righteous acts have actually gained some favor with God. That it's really about what he has done, not what God has done. And that's fueled a self-confidence in him. And it oozes from his posture. He's assuming that he's in a good standing with God. And again, is that in any way me? Do I look at myself in terms of this community of believers in terms of my status, my position, how long I've been uh, walking with Christ, how mature I am in the faith, how often I read my Bible, how effective I am in my prayers, how esteemed I am in my service. Do I parade around in any way? Do I walk into this a building, onto this property in any way thinking 
that I'm something. Or do I pray God-dependently? The tax collector's posture and, and demeanor say everything here. The tax collector, verse 13, standing far off. I mean, he didn't consider himself worthy of being near the other worshipers who had flocked into the temple for prayers. He feels exactly the opposite of the tax collector. He does not feel like he belongs there. He does not feel like these are his people. He does not feel safe in this place because of the people around him. He doesn't think that he's worthy to be with the religious types. So he stands, notice, far off from the others. The verse goes on to say he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. The, the normal way for a Jew to pray, what's often modeled in the scriptures, is they would actually lift their eyes to the heavens and pray like this. We don't often pray like that. But they would lift their eyes and pray to God. Standing in the temple courts, they'd have the advantage of seeing the temple in front of them and being able to look up into the skies, into the heavens, and pray to God. But he didn't consider himself worthy of that, so he's standing there with his head down. The posture says everything about his heart and his attitude. And he beat his breast, the verse says. He's praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, that was like the normal way for women to express godly grief, for them to mourn. I mean, this guy's just, it's just him and God. He doesn't care what anyone around him thinks of him. That he's even willing to do what's not normal for a man to do. Because he's so not about the comparisons and he's so much about what God thinks of him and how dependent he is on him. He knows he's bringing nothing to the table. He knows he doesn't deserve to be in the temple praying as he is. He knows he doesn't deserve what the priest is going to do in a few minutes and come out and bless the crowd. You think, well, that sounds like the prayer of a new convert. And it isn't. This should be the normal attitude and posture and prayer and words and attitudes and actions of every single one of us, every day of our life, every step of the way with Christ. Never forgetting that we're dependent on Him for everything, for our very breath. Prayer must never become a rehearsal of my accomplishments but must remain a constant reminder of my deep dependency on the one to whom I pray. And then in prayer, the content of it. See this next, a couple of questions. Do I rehearse my good works? The content of the Pharisee's prayer is so troubling. Look what he says here in verse 12. I fast twice a week. It's not even a biblical requirement to do that. I mean, fasting's kind of a funny thing. Even when Christians fast today, they kind of tell you they're doing it. It's kind of something you're supposed to do just between you and the Lord. It's a self-sacrificing thing. 
I'm going to get rid of some things I would normally do and, and, and like food. I'm going to set that aside for a period of time. I'm gonna, and I'm supposed to be just between you and the Lord. And people tell people that they're fasting, even like on Facebook. I'm like, well, you may as well stop. Go get a burger. You just blew it. <laughs> this guy, he's all up in front of the Lord. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I mean, who's he trying to impress? Is God impressed with his twice a week fasting or the tithing that he's doing? Could God, the God, the perfect God of the universe who made everything, could he possibly be impressed with this? Let me help us understand this a little bit. I want to introduce you to somebody. His name is uh, Rory. And uh, Rory, look at that picture. That is a fine specimen of a man. Is he not? Now, Rory's a member of our church, and he's in this room right now. And um, Rory uh, and his wife, Denisha, own a gym on the south side of town. And, uh, you know, so Cheryl and I decided that um, we've spent more than five decades of our life ignoring our health. And so it's time to kind of get serious about some things if we want to kind of live a little longer, you know, and be healthy. So uh, we decided to start going to, to the gym. And so, Rory, thank you for that encouragement. <laughs> Should have heard the people last night. They were not encouraging. Anyway, so, okay, so this is your chance to be encouraging. We've been three times. Okay, we've been three times. So we work out twice a week. Cheryl and I work out twice a week with Rory. And, um, and, and here's the thing. You look at this man and you realize... Just guessing, just looking at him, you go, he could probably bench press quite a bit. Would you agree with that? I don't know how much, but probably quite a bit, okay? So this past week, I was bench pressing too. Okay. But everybody understands. There's no possible way I could ever bench press enough to impress Rory. Isn't that true? I could never bench press enough to impress Rory. Now, you get my point. There's no way we could ever do enough fasting, enough giving, enough service that we could say enough words or make enough good moral choices to ever impress God. And yet here's this Pharisee rehearsing these things for God. This would be like someone here praying at the end of the weekend, Lord, we had a really good weekend. I just want to remind you about what I did. So I was in worship. I worshiped one, and, and then I worked one. I was in worship at 9 a.m., and then I worked in Harvest Kids at 11. Lord, I want to let you know that I gave my offering. I gave it on Thursday through direct banking, in case you didn't notice, that I didn't give on the weekend. And... and um, Lord, I got some of those invitation cards and I gave those away to some people so they'll come to the Easter services. I just wanted to let you know all of this, Lord, to know how good I am. And we rehearse this stuff. Now, we wouldn't say it quite that way, but then we start leveraging that and using that with the Lord to get some things from him. It's so off base. It's not impressing him at all. Because the attitude behind it is, look how holy I am, Lord as if he's impressed with our holiness. And we, like the Pharisee, may have forgotten the words of the prophet Isaiah 64, 6, when he said, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
And those of you who know the scriptures know that the reference to the polluted garment, it's very sanitized in English, is a, a, a used menstrual cloth. That's what your good works are like. Compared to God. Paul said it in a more sanitized way. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. So that no one may, what's the word? No one may boast. God did it. So what are we doing with those kinds of prayers where we're rehearsing our good works? None of it's going to make any difference in our approach to God, not in a positive sense. And so do I rehearse my good works to God? Or here's the other side of the question, do I repent of my sin? I mean, in pleading for mercy in verse 13, the tax collector's repenting. He's confessing his sin. Repentance, we understand, is both agreement with God. The thing I've been thinking and doing is not the right way. God, I agree with you. And then I turn from that way of doing it back toward the Lord and commit my way to do it his way. That's what repentance really is. And in fact, in his prayer, the word merciful, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Merciful, this is not the normal word that you see for mercy used throughout the scripture, but one that actually carries a little bit more to it. It carries the idea of atonement or that sacrifice um, in his blood that Jesus Christ had to make to cover our sin. That's what atonement is. And so this word, merciful, actually carries that idea in it. In other words, it's not just a plea for mercy. It's a plea for mercy that includes an understanding that I'm confessing my sin and I need God to repair it. In other words, this word, merciful, is about merciful reconciliation with God. The very thing that Jesus provided by the shedding of his blood and his atonement. And I love, love this verse Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, where did the tax collector stand when he was in the temple? He stood far off, distance from God. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I pictured Jesus going down into that temple and wrapping that tax collector up in his arms and assuring him of his forgiveness and giving him his love. Do I repent of my sin? The parable ends in verse 13 and Jesus goes into the explanation and the application, verse 14. I tell you, this man the tax collector, went down to his house justified, forgiven, saved, redeemed, reconciled to God rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. Now this is a shocking reversal that we can miss in our reading of the gospel. The folks in the first century would not have missed what Jesus was saying here. They would have understood completely that what Jesus was saying was this super religious, pious, devoted, 
man who went to the temple and gave his tithes and his whole life was affected by his faith was not the guy to be. That this sinful man who's part of the 90% who doesn't go to church and doesn't go to temple and whose life is not consistent with the scriptures, that's the man you want to emulate. I mean, Jesus is taking the entire system of Judaism at the time and he's turning it on its head. Everything you've ever thought, stop thinking it. And think this instead. And it should be no less shocking to us. Do I leave the presence of God unforgiven or do I leave forgiven? Because the uber-religious Pharisee didn't have it. He left unforgiven. And here's the tragic part about that. He didn't realize it. He thought his religion was saving him. And it wasn't. And, and, and I have some mercy for him. I have compassion for him. Because there's so many devoted religious people in the world today who don't have it. And we have this intense tolerance thing that's been built into us. And we look at really pious religious people and we go, will God really condemn them to hell? Look how sincere and devoted they are. Does God really say that they're not in? We struggle with this. And yet everything in the scriptures points to it. Some are in and some are not. It's just a harsh reality of this. Jesus said, one man went down to his house justified. The other did not. And the criteria we've been looking at here lays it out. It's the posture. It's the attitude before God. It's the very words that are spoken to him that demonstrate whether we're dependent on God or dependent on ourselves. And that approach then determines our actual standing before him. And so when you go before the Lord, do you leave forgiven or unforgiven? It's a critical question. Religious observance no matter how sincere, does not save. At the end of it all, it comes down to this, a phrase that Jesus already used in chapter 14 of Luke. It comes back again here in chapter 18, verse 14. Notice what he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so do I, am I in the process? Do I lift myself up? And therefore, I put myself in a position where God's going to bring me down low. He's going to humble me. He's going to crush me. I mean, that doesn't sound like something anybody would really want. I mean, who would choose that? I'm going to put myself in a position where God's going to drop the hammer on me. I mean, that would just be dumb to live your life in that way. I mean, there's so many examples of people who did this very thing. If you've read through your Bible, you know the stories. 
over and over again. People lifted themselves up and brought, God brought them down. And we think about here, I got some examples written down here, and we think of just in terms of the consequences in an earthly sense, okay? Pharaoh, he commanded a great empire, but he wouldn't get humble before the Lord, and Moses said, let the people go. So God brought these 10 plagues on him, and the consequences were devastating on the country and affected him personally when his own son was taken. Finally says you can go and then the, the Israelites run off into the desert and, they're, and, and then Pharaoh has a change of heart. He rallies his army and they go off and then he watches his entire army drown in the sea. He exalted himself before the Lord. He lifted himself up and God brought him low. I think about King Saul, privileged to be the first king of Israel, anointed by God to do that. And he lost his way and thought too much of himself and took matters into his own hands. And so he watched his son, Jonathan, be taken from him. He watched his kingdom be taken from him. And then he lost his own life. Because he stood against the Lord. I think about the nation of Israel itself who refused as a nation to repent at the constant preaching of the prophets. God sent the Babylonian army and to raise the city walls and knock down the temple and burn the city and take the best of the people away to exile for the next seven decades. God brought his own people low. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the emperor, the king who overstood, over, overstood that, that invasion, he himself got to the place standing on his palace walls looking at his great kingdom and going, look how awesome I am. And God essentially turned him into an animal for seven years. He exalted himself before the Lord Judas, who thought he had a better plan. Took his own life, brought low by the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira in the early church lied about their offering exalted themselves in front of the Lord, tested him, and he, he took them out one by one in front of the apostle. And King Herod, the voice of a God and not a man, and he refused to give God the glory, knowing better. And the scriptures say that he was eaten by worms and died. The order of that is important. He was eaten by worms and died. I mean, we have so many biblical examples. That's just a sampling of them. And if you set aside the examples we just have in the scripture, and you have to be so careful about this, but I just, I've been around long enough and seen enough people who exalted themselves before the Lord and thought that they were more than what they really were and didn't give him glory. And I would say as carefully as I possibly could, sure looks like it could be, I think maybe, the Lord took them out and took away what they had. Like, how many examples do we need before we would get low? 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. The latter part of that verse just says this, no human being may boast in the presence of the Lord. No human being may boast in the presence of the Lord. 
I mean, and you think about the earthly consequences that we've talked about here, but then there's the eternal consequences of, of separation from God for all eternity. Something that the scriptures, as I read about hell and study that out, you just see that the scriptures themselves seem to struggle with the concept of even, how do you describe something like that? No human being may boast in the presence of the Lord. None of us has anything to offer God. Not even the kings and emperors of this world, the most powerful that have ever walked this earth, none of them have anything to offer God. You don't, I don't. And so what I need to do, this is the second part of it, I need to get low and allow the Lord to lift me up. And that requires, of course, humility. It's stated right here. Notice it's the one who humbles himself that person will be exalted. And getting low is exactly what we've seen in this parable modeled by the tax collector. Getting low is having the right approach to God. It's not comparing to anyone but God. It's not pushing my own works and holiness forward, but seeing salvation as a grace gift from God, undeserved and unearned, and that it comes to me exclusively through Jesus Christ. And I struggle with this because the thing that I feel inside of me constantly is this desire to exalt myself. The default human setting is for every person in this room to push themselves forward, to self-promote. Because we all want people to like us. We all want to be affirmed and esteemed. We all want people to say nice things. We struggle to have status and position and so we push ourselves forward. Again, it is the default setting of every human being. I can't help myself, but exalting myself must give way to humility so God has room to exalt me. First Peter 5 speaks of this, that God would exalt me at the proper time when he chooses to do so. And honestly, that exaltation, we start to think about this, and this is the great news about all of this, when God exalts us, I mean, what are we going to get? Well, the, at, the most awesome thing is we're going to get a glorified body. I imagine my glorified body looking like Rory's. <laughs> I do. I do. I can't wait for that. But God has called us sons and daughters. We do have an inheritance waiting for us. And among the best things that he does when he exalts us, what is he, what's he lifting us out of? Revelation 21.4. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. He's lifting us out of sorrow and out of death. There'll be no mourning, nor crying, or pain anymore. He's going to lift us out of all of the pain for the former things will have passed away. So much in that that's worth going after, don't you think? And going after in the right way with the right approach to God. Our part just get low and let's let the Lord lift us up at the proper time. I'm going to invite Alana Story to come back up here, this band that has been serving us so well this weekend, and um, I'm going to have them actually sing a song over us, one of their own songs called uh, Confession. 
Just listen, please. Just listen to these words uh, that they're going to sing in a moment. When I repent, when I confess, you break the back of selfishness. My soul washed clean, no scar, no mark. Like a flood, you fill my heart. And that encapsulates this parable. So I thought about how we should respond to this message. And, you know, sometimes it is a good thing just to say, hey, if some of you would like to respond to this message and come to the front and have a quiet time of prayer, that can be an awesome thing. And then I got to thinking, there's not a person in this room that shouldn't respond to this in the way the parable tells us to respond. Because this is a, a, a 100% application to every one of us. This needs to inform every prayer that we pray in the coming week. And so let's start right now and respond to him right now in the way that we saw the tax collector respond. And so the band's going to play. It's a great song. You can... You can pray along with the lyrics. You can sing them or pray them. You can pray on your own and have your heads bowed. You can get on your knees. You could stand. You can respond in every, whatever way God's prompting you to respond right now. To do exactly what the tax collector did. To see myself as God sees me. To show my dependency on him. To freely repent of my sin. And to get low before the God who freely dispenses his grace to us. And so let's pray right now and let's respond as the band leads us. And then I'll come back up and close.